Exodus 16, hear now God's holy word. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? We, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, fleck-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each of you, as much as he can. You shall each one take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. 
Today you will find it in the field. You will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread which I, with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, till they came to a habitable land, they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an Ephaf. Thank the Lord for his word. And Tim's going to come. Uh... Great. Good morning. I'm, I'm slightly tempted at this point to throw a hissy fit. Just to sort of... Do you, have a, do you know what a hissy fit is in Northern Ireland? Okay. Oh, really, really. Some of you know all too well. Um, Just as an illustration, because here's my first line. When was the last time you heard someone grumble or complain? Um, Anyway, when was the last time you heard someone grumble or complain? Uh, Was it at some point in the past week? Or the past day? Some point this morning? Uh, what about you? When was the last time you grumbled or complained? Past month, week, day? In Exodus fifteen, sixteen, and 17, we get three stories, and they are all stories of grumbling. 15 and 24, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, Where, what are we to drink? This story that we've just read together, chapter 16, verse 2, begins in the desert. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. In fact, there's just lots of references to grumbling all the way through the story. And then chapter 17, the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. So three stories about grumbling. And so the choice that these stories sort of pose for us is a choice between grumbling and gratitude. A grumbling life or a grateful life. A grumbling life or a grateful life. Look at verse 3 of uh, chapter 16. You have brought, this is what the people say to Moses, you have brought us out into this desert to starve this whole assembly, this entire assembly to death. It's a ridiculous thing to say, isn't it? Why on earth would Moses do that? Why would he confront Pharaoh with all that and all that kind of hassle just to bring the people out in order to starve them? And yet, which of us has not said at one point, they've got it in for me? Or, this is a disaster. 
or nobody cares. You remember those uh, Snickers adverts where uh, someone is being really annoying and their friends say to them, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you're a bit whiny when you're hungry. You know, see, know those adverts? If only life was so simple. The reality is that it's our real selves that are revealed when we're hungry or tired or ill or frustrated or lonely. You know, most of the time we maintain this, this sort of charming facade. We like to portray ourselves as lovely, patient people. And most of the time we can kind of pull off that, pull, pull that off, uh, but not when we're hungry or tired. Then the facade slips and our real selves are revealed. Or again, look at verse 3, how it continues. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Now back in Exodus 2, we heard the cry of the Israelites. They suffered under the yoke of Egyptian slavery. Their kind of wail goes up to the Lord. But suddenly... Egypt was a lovely place to live. Oh, do you remember those nights where we sat around pots of meat, when we had a barbie, you know, in the, in the evening? It's transformed in their memories into this wonderful place to live. The whips and the bricks and the massacre of the baby boys, all forgotten. If only we were back in Egypt. And again, that's such a human reaction, isn't it? We view our present with its problems in the worst possible light, and we view the past in the best possible light. Or we think that our situation is terrible while everyone else is having a wonderful time. Or I think perhaps most common of all, we create in our minds this kind of wonderful alternative. If only I could have that holiday or that promotion. Or that spouse, then my life would be wonderful instead of this misery that I'm enduring now. And here's the thing this story here in chapter 16 takes place one month roughly after the Exodus. In fact, their first bout of grumbling in chapter 15 took place three days after they had passed through the Red Sea. Three days. They had had this amazing deliverance. And three days later, they're grumbling. And again, that's so common, isn't it? Perhaps you're a new Christian. You've experienced firsthand the wonderful deliverance of God. And actually, as we saw yesterday, it is a deliverance very like the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. We have been delivered from the slavery of sin and the threat of death. The Exodus is there as a kind of picture of what has happened to you if you're a new Christian. Escaping the penalty and power of death because Jesus has led you to freedom. And maybe that has happened in the last year or two. Maybe for someone here it was three days ago. But now reality has kind of kicked back in, as it were. You, you still have to go to work. And your family still annoy you. 
If anything, life feels tougher. Now there are new expectations and new hostilities, perhaps. And so all too easily we forget the grace and the power of God. Or maybe you're having a great time here. Maybe, I don't know. Enjoying good company, hearing God's word, singing his praises, touched by his spirit. But what about next Tuesday? Three days' time. Back at home with the same frustrating boss. Or the same debts. Or the same diagnosis. In chapter, in verse 4, uh, in fact, in all three stories, but uh, here in verse 4, we're told that the Lord put them to the test. Here's the test of true faith. It's easy to believe when everything is going great. Easy to believe, perhaps, when you're surrounded by other Christians. But what about when life is tough? What about when you're the only Christian in your home or in your school or in your workplace? Later on in Exodus, Moses tells the people, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, the purpose of God testing us is not to provide God with information. It's not so that he can kind of determine whether you're worthy or not of his blessing. That's not the purpose of God coming to test us. It's not for God's benefit so that he can learn a bit more information. The benefit is for us. We're the ones who get a new understanding when God comes to test us. God tests us so that we can understand our limits and his unlimited love. See, our problem is we become so easily focused on our, on our problem, whatever it might be, that it kind of fills our sight. It's almost as if we kind of hold it up to our face and that's all we can see. And then we wonder why it's dark. So we can't see beyond what is in front of us. We suffer a major loss of perspective. The problems are real. I mean, the, have some sympathy with the Israelites here. They are, in the first story, they run out of water. In the second story, they run out of food. It is a real problem. But they can't see beyond their problem to the God who has just delivered them in the most remarkable way. And so the antidote to grumbling is to lift our eyes, to lift our eyes. And what do we see? Well, first of all, we see a generous father. We see a generous father. The people were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. That's what verse 2 says. But actually, look at the end of verse 8, for example, or end of verse 7. No, end of verse 8, sorry. You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. That's very challenging, isn't it? I suspect 
there are few of us in the room who have grumbled against the Lord, not directly. I doubt whether any of you have sort of said, oh, you know, God is so unkind to me. No, what, we grumble against our boss or our neighbor or our family or the government or the weather. But all these things are in God's hands. And he's using them to achieve his purposes in our lives. Endure hardship as discipline, says the writer of Hebrews. God is treating you as his children. And I don't know if you noticed as we were reading, but verses 6 and 7, and then verse 8, and then verse 12, all follow the same basic pattern. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. This is what God says, or says through Moses to the people. In the evening... You will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. And that's the same pattern. In the morning, you will know the Lord. In, sorry, in the evening, you will know the Lord. In the morning, you will see the Lord. Why? Because he has heard your grumbling. If they're going to stop grumbling... They need to know the Lord. They need to see the Lord. We grumble because we forget that God is a generous Father. And then think about how it is that God responds to their grumbling. In the evening, quail come, and they're so easily caught that the people have meat to eat. In the morning, the dew leaves behind thin flakes of frost. We think of it sounds a bit like Kellogg's Frosties, I don't know. Um, or look at verse 4 this is what God promises I will rain down bread from heaven on you I will rain down bread from heaven actually that word rain down is the word that is used of God's action on Sodom and Gomorrah there he rained down fire from heaven it's the same word that is used of the plague of hail that fell on Egypt. God rained down hail, deadly hail, on Egypt. It's a, it's, a, it's a raining down of judgment, and that is what Israel deserve. They deserve God to rain down fire and hail in judgment upon them. And what does he do? He rains down blessing. What do the Israelites receive from God? Verse 8, all the bread you want. We're told in verse 12 that you will be filled with bread. Indeed, I think the implication of these verses is that everyone had to kind of estimate the right amount to collect and miraculously whatever they guessed turned out to be just the right amount for their family. God is a generous father who cares for his children, who rains down blessing on his children. Yesterday, if you were here yesterday, we said that Romans 6 is Paul's kind of uh, meditation on the story of the Exodus, uh, on, on that act of liberation. I think Romans 8 is Paul's meditation on what it means to be led through the wilderness to the promised land. 
And so in Romans 8 verse 14, this is what Paul says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So it's this idea, I think, of, of the, the glory of God, you know, the pillars of uh, cloud and fire leading the Israelites. Well, now as, as the new people of God, the, re, the re, uh, redeemed people of God, we are led by the Spirit through life, as it were, en route to the promised land, to the new creation. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. We're being led away from slavery. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means the Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. Whether you look back to Egypt, as it were, as they do at the beginning of chapter 16 and sort of get all nostalgic about how wonderful life was in Egypt, whether you look back to your old way of life, your old sinful way of life, all depends on how you view God. If you see God as a tyrant, as a killjoy, then sin is going to look like a good option. But what if you see God as a generous and caring father? This is why the Spirit leads us from slavery to sin to freedom by testifying that God is our father. So that life with God, life under God, so that we see that as the good life. Suppose you're facing temptation. If you think of it as a choice between the pleasures of sin or going without the pleasures of sin, guess what? Nine times out of ten, you're going to choose to sin. Because it's a choice between pleasure and not having pleasure. Who chooses not having pleasure in that situation? We've got to kind of reframe the choice, see the choice as the Bible presents it. A choice between serving sin, which is slavery, and death, and serving a generous Father who rains down blessing on us, who fills us so that we are full. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit, all the time, the Spirit is pointing us to God and saying, He is your Father. He's pointing us to the kindness of our Father, to our adoption as His children. And our job is to follow where He leads, to look where He points, and to cry out, Abba, Father. So we're to remember that God is a generous Father. That's what we, when we look up from our problems, that's what we see, a generous Father. And then secondly, we see a gracious rescue. So God says that through the manna, he's going to reveal himself. You will know, verse 6, you will see, verse 7, you will know, verse 8. What is it that he's going to reveal? Verse 6, that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. That is what God is going to reveal. In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, 
the manna is meant to direct their attention back to the Exodus. And I think the point is this. God is generous to us every day, every moment. He gives us so many good gifts. But sometimes he also asks us to go without. We don't always get what we want. We don't always receive what we pray for, at least not in, not in the exact way that we pray for it. What do we do in those times? Well, we look to his great act of redemption. And for the Israelites, that was the exodus. And for us, that is the cross. That's where we see the kindness of God on display, written for us in capital letters, bold and underlined. I, um, I once went to a conference a number of years ago now where I had to share a room with a stranger. For an Englishman, that's a very uncomfortable thing to do. Uh, and my roommate had a Bible. It's not particularly surprising. It was a Christian conference. But it was, it was a surprising Bible. On the, the, the cover of the Bible had a kind of design on it uh, with these words. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I thought, that's a bit odd. I mean, not because that's, not, not that's a bad verse to choose, but that's not what the verse says. Do you spot what was wrong with that? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I thought, I don't think that's right. So I looked it up in his Bible. <laughs> and what the verse says is, in all these things, this is Romans 8, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Past tense. Not him who loves us, through him who loved us. Past tense. And I think that's crucial. Now the point is not that God has stopped loving us, that you know he just loved us a few some time ago but stopped. That's not the point. The point is he loved us when he sent his son to die for us. That is the great demonstration of his love for us. The cross. That's where we see his love writ large. And that's important because when Paul says in all these things we are more than conquerors, this is what he has in mind. Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. None of those is an obvious sign of God's love. Not, not on their own. That they, they might well be God's love in action, but that's not necessarily obvious to you when you're in the middle of famine or nakedness or danger or sword or so on. And it, it, you might well in those kind of situations wonder actually whether God does love you. What do you do in those situations? You look to the cross. That's how we can conquer, even in the midst of hardship. Because we look to that great declaration of his love. Every day, manna reminded them of God's generosity. But what they were really supposed to do was to look to the exodus. And there will be times when if, you, if all you do is look at the circumstances of your life, you might wonder whether God loves you. 
But if you lift your eyes and you look at the cross, there you will see the fierce intensity of God's love for you. A moment ago, we uh, read from uh, John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, Jesus tells the disciples there to gather the pieces that are left over. And that word gather, uh, same kind of word, is used uh, nine times in Exodus 16. It's a big deal. In fact, that is a quarter of the times that it's used in the Old Testament, all just in one chapter. Like the Lord with Israel, uh, they are being invited to gather up bread. And like Israel, uh, we're told, John says, that Jesus asked Philip to provide bread to test him. John 6, verse 6, same kind of language. Jesus is testing the disciples so that they learn to trust him. And the other gospel writers describe the location as the wild, a wilderness. So they're kind of piling up all these illusions so that, make no mistake, what Jesus does in providing bread for the 5,000 is a, is a kind of parallel of the provision of manna in the wilderness. They all had enough, says John 6 verse 12, very similar language. They all ate and were satisfied, says Mark 6. Here is a wonderful promise of satisfaction. But it's a mistake to focus on the bread. The bread is a kind of signpost pointing us to the Lord Jesus. And so the next day, the crowd in John's gospel, they come looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, you ate the loaves and had your fill. You know, in other words, you've, you've just come to me because you just want another helping of bread. But he offers them food that endures to eternal life. to receive the bread that he provides. And what is that bread? Well, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In other words, Jesus is not simply providing another meal. He is promising to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. We are made to know God. And in Jesus, we meet God. We were made for love. And in Jesus, we are loved. We are loved with a love that even death cannot conquer. And what happens next in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000? Can you remember? You couldn't make it up. Here it is. At this, the Jews there began to grumble because about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm not making it up. They begin to grumble. Now, it's what's so extraordinary about this is they themselves have made the link to the story of the manna earlier on in John 6. So they know that this story is being replayed here. 
And it's as if they then sort of play the role. Somebody in the, if I remember that story of man, it's the one where the Israelites grumble. Somebody better do the grumbling bit. The true bread of life is standing before them and he's not enough. And, and when you read John 6, I don't know if you noticed this, it's just full of invitations to find life, to find satisfaction. Just full of invitations and offers and generosity. There is only one command in the whole chapter. Only one command, and it is this. Stop grumbling. John 6, verse 43. The religious leaders can't see the amazing provision God has made for our sin, our guilt, our emptiness. They can't see the bread of life standing in front of them, and so they grumble. Now, I don't know what blessings you're enjoying at the moment. Perhaps work is going really well. Perhaps you're enjoying uh, your time here with your friends. Perhaps you're getting married and four weeks' time. Perhaps in this past year, you've seen some dramatic answers to prayer. Please don't let the gifts obscure your view of the giver. Or perhaps some of you, though, are, are struggling. Your heart, is, your heart is full of longing. weighed down by the cares of life. I think there's a sense in which, this is my observation on life, when there's a sense in which while the things we aspire to, whether that's a spouse or a, a lovely home or uh, success in work or sport or uh, family life or whatever it might be, while those things are kind of just out of reach. It's very easy for us to sort of think that if I could just get my hands on those, you know, when that moment comes, when, that, when I pass that exam, when I get that promotion, when I get that house, when I get married, then I'll be happy. Then life will be full and rich and complete. But the bread of life, the true bread, the bread that gives life, the bread that truly satisfies is Jesus. And he is within reach already. We are made for more than the things of this earth. We are made for God. All the things we enjoy, says John Calvin, are ladders by which we may ascend nearer to God. God, he says, by his benefits, gently attracts us to himself, giving us a taste of his fatherly sweetness. You may not always get what you want or what you think you want, but you can have Jesus. And he is never second best. Now, each of these stories is described as a test. 
Each story is an invitation to trust God, who he is and what he's done. But in Exodus 16, the test takes a very practical form. Uh, By the way, with the sun coming out like this, I cannot see you at all now. (laughs) But I can see my notes much more clearly, so there's there's an upside. Uh, In Exodus 16, it takes a very practical form. They must gather enough manna for one day and one day only. And the exception then, of course, is the sixth day when they are to gather two days' worth so that they have extra for the Sabbath. What that means is the Sabbath is going to provide this focus for their faith in God. Some people don't trust God for tomorrow, verse 20. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So what do you, what did they get by grasping? By holding on, by not trusting God, but holding on, they got a whole load of maggots in their house. It's not a good return, really, is it? And a smell. God is teaching his people here to trust him with daily trust. If, If what had happened is that they had got a whole load of manna that they could store for a year, what would have happened? For 364 days, they would have trusted their stores. And then only on the last day would they uh, have to turn to God and trust in God. But instead, they have to trust him every day. And it's the same in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Now, our forebears placed a big uh, emphasis on the Sabbath, Some of that became somewhat legalistic. Uh, Some of that... uh, 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 But I wonder if if in kind of leaving that legalism behind, we've lost something precious. Sabbath is an important rhythm in the Christian life. One that provides, that sort of proves our faith and strengthens our faith. Sabbath, in, in whatever form it takes for you, is a weekly reminder that you're not your provider. You're not your savior. You're not the savior of your world or your soul or your home or your workplace. You can't prove yourself. You can't can't kind of prove yourself worthy. And you don't need to. You can't save the people in your life, no no matter how much you try and love them and care for them. In the end, you can't save them. You can't organize the world, and you don't need to. You can't solve the problems around you, and you don't have to, because you have Christ. Christ is your savior. Christ is in control. Your future is in his hands. And Sabbath, Sunday, every once a week, you have this reminder of that, this this prompt to think in those terms. Daughter of some friends of ours was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And uh, she faced a nine-hour operation to have the tumor removed, and then a year of intense treatment and then, uh, and, and still now, a sort of lifetime of uncertainty 
as to when it might recur or return. How do you face a challenge like that? And as we talked it over with them, I think we found it really helpful to be able to say, we don't have to work out what we'll do in three weeks' time or how we'll cope in three months' time. You can just take one day at a time. We can trust God for today. You don't have to worry about whether we'll trust him tomorrow. We trust God that we will trust God tomorrow. Just one day. When we worry, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. But he also says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't need to have faith for tomorrow. You just need to have faith today. One final thing. The final story in chapter 17, the people have no, uh, follows a very similar pattern. There's no water. They grumble. But there is a new development. Uh, we find here that having all, all the other stories, we're told that God tested Israel. But in this story, we're told that Israel tested God. They tested God, says verse, uh, Moses says in verse 2. Moses replied, why do you quarrel against me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And there's another new development. Verse 2 says, they quarreled with Moses. It's a new word. We haven't met that word, quarrel, before. It has a legal connotation. It, you might translate it, they pressed their case, or they brought their charges against Moses. It's legal language. They are putting God on trial here. They are putting God on trial. Where is their hope for a people who put God on trial? And the answer is at the rock. Let me, let's just think about the choreography of what goes on in this story. The Israelites have put God on trial through their grumbling against God. And so God, as it were, arranges the courtroom. The representatives, so all, all the people are kind of where you are. Let's, put, let's, let, let's make you the people of Israel. So you're all there. And God at the front sort of says, okay, the representatives of Israel, they'll come out and be, they'll stand on one side. And then he says that uh, he will come and be present in front of the rock. So there's this rock on the other side. Uh, verse uh, 6, I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. And then in the middle is Moses with his staff. This is the staff that brought judgment on Egypt. You know, remember he hits the uh, Nile and turns to blood and something. So there's Moses with the staff. It's the staff that represents judgment. So this is the court scene. On one side, you've got Israel. They're, they're, um, uh, on the other side, you've got God, those are the two parties in this court case. And Moses is going to effectively, is going to play the role of judge. And everyone else looks on. And uh, someone is going to be condemned and someone is going to be vindicated. It's the way it works. And uh, any reading of the evidence would suggest that Israel is going to be condemned 
and God is going to be vindicated. Because they've, they've grumbled, and he's blessed. It's a pretty straightforward case. What happens? We read that at the crucial point, God tells Moses to bring the rod of judgment down and hit the rock. At the end of the court case, judgment falls. But it falls on God. It falls on the rock. And then as a result, water flows out of the rock. Blessing, as it were, gushes forth to a thirsty people. Later on in the New Testament, Paul says, that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That story, this whole kind of scenario, is a picture of the cross. At the cross, the great court case between God and humanity comes to its climax. On the one side is humanity. On the other side is God. And the evidence is presented, and all the evidence points to our condemnation and God's vindication, and judgment falls, but it falls on Christ. And not on us. And as a result, blessing gushes forth to us, to you. Our thirst is quenched. Our hunger is satisfied. Our guilt is removed. Let me pray. Father God, forgive us that we are so quick to grumble. Uh, just like the Israelites, it only takes three days. And uh, as it were, we move so quickly from receiving your blessing to grumbling. Forgive us. Forgive our loss of perspective. Forgive us that we so easily get preoccupied with our problems and, and, and miss your generosity. Please would you time and again lift our eyes. May we help one another do that. Lift our eyes and see you, our Father in heaven. May we follow the lead of the Spirit within us. Uh, but we are, we are guilty. We know that. We confess that. We deserve your rod of judgment to fall on us. But we thank you that it fell on Christ. You gave your only son, that he himself gladly gave up his life. And I pray this morning that, that as it were, blessing would gush forth on us. That we would look to Christ, the bread of life, the living water, and we would be satisfied. And I pray for us too. I pray even more for us in three days' time, next Tuesday in the midst of work or family or whatever it is that 
Tuesday brings for us, as it were, that we would lift our eyes and that we would conquer through him who loved us, through that great demonstration of your love at the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.